Hello there, and welcome to The Essentials. I'm James. I'm the pastor of the Freedom Moravian Church, and this podcast is a space where we talk about life, where we explore our faith, and we try to look for ways that we can take the most hope-filled steps forward each day. I hope that you had a wonderful 4th of July. If you're in a place like I am, you're still hearing a couple of fireworks in your neighborhood each night, but I hope you enjoyed the holiday. I have no idea how we raced through the month of June and how we are already past the 4th of July, and I hope the rest of the summer doesn't go that quickly. But as the days fly by, I hope you're able to enjoy each and every single one. So as we just came off of celebrating the 4th of July, July 6th in the Moravian Church is actually another very important day for the life of our faith and for our congregations as well. Because July 6th is the day that we remember the martyrdom of John Hus or Jan Hus, who was a Catholic priest in the Czech Republic. He was burned at the stake in 1415. And we, today, 600 years later, are still feeling the effects of the things that he believed and the movement that he sparked. But he himself was not a Moravian. As I mentioned, he was a Catholic priest. The followers that he gained and the followers that kept going after his death called themselves Hussites. Eventually, they'd call themselves the Unity of the Brethren, and then they would form what's now known as the Moravian Church. And John Huss is credited with the very early movements of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther who's typically referred to as the one who brought about this Protestant Reformation, he himself said that he would have been a Hussite because he was so in line with the things that John Huss believed. And one of our seminary professors said that the only difference between Huss and Luther when it came to this movement of the Reformation was that Luther had the invention of the printing press. And he could get information scattered more quickly and his movement could gain a little bit more momentum when Huss didn't have that luxury. So for today, I want to share with you and just talk quickly about three of the changes Huss wanted the church to make and then bring it to today and offer three potential changes that our churches could make, that our walks of faith could partake in to maybe build a little more hope for our future. So the first thing that John Huss believed in was the idea that everyone should get to read the Bible in their own language. He lived at a time when it was only the priests who were educated to read the Bibles that were written in Latin or maybe to have the Greek or Hebrew to study the New Testament and the Old Testament. But the average person just going to worship wouldn't be able to read the Bible. It wasn't translated in their language. So they depended on the priest to teach them what the Bible was saying. 
And Huss thought that we should all have the chance to explore the Bible and to explore scripture on our own. So he spoke out for the Bible being translated into each person's native language. So we could take on scripture on our own. Another thing that Huss believed in was another example of giving more power and authority and sense of dignity to the quote-unquote average church-going person, and that was something called the lay chalice. Huss believed that when we partake in communion, the bread and the cup, that we should all have access to both of those two elements. When he lived at a time when the priests could get the bread and the cup, but those in the congregation just had access to the bread. And Huss believed that this sacrament of communion was a gift from Jesus to all of us, that he gave his body and blood for all who believed in him, not just body and blood for the priests and the body for everyone else. He thought we should all have access to both elements in communion. And finally, Huss spoke out against the church's practice of indulgences at the time. Now, indulgences happened in many different ways, but it was primarily a way for the church to exploit and take advantage of the members of the congregation. A common way this took place was, say you had a loved one pass away, the priest would say to you that, your loved one is in purgatory. They're neither in heaven nor hell, but they can get to heaven. The priest will pray on your behalf to get them to heaven if you offer a donation to the church. If you give a little money, I can get your grandma into heaven. And Haas thought this was an obvious abuse of power and he spoke out against this practice in the church. And as he preached these things, as he taught these things, he gained quite a following. He was eventually excommunicated by the church. After some time, he was invited to come back. He was given the opportunity to recant, to take back what he'd been preaching and teaching in order to spare his life. But Huss believed that the truth of the gospel was more important. He thought these truths that he was speaking up for were more important than even his own life. And he, instead of recanting, instead of taking everything back, was eventually burned at the stake for having these beliefs. And rather than just give you a history lesson for today, I thought we would touch upon three potential changes our current church could make. What's the reformation that is needed in 2023? And before I offer those potential changes, I'll state the obvious that I'm not expecting these three things to have anywhere near the same impact as John Huss. I am not expecting churches in 600 years to talk about what I am mentioning on this podcast today. That's not what I'm striving for. And I set myself up for that, trying to 
mimic the three changes that Huss made himself. And I also have the luxury in knowing that whatever I offer, whatever changes I suggest, I'm probably not going to lose my life for them. Huss did not have that luxury. So I can offer these changes with a little more comfort, with a little less fear, but also knowing that it's not going to have the same impact that Huss had, and that's okay. So I thought of three potential changes that we could see in the life of our faith and in our churches that could maybe provide a little more life, a little more hope to the future of Christianity. And the first change, or at least focus, that I think we should have is pretty similar in terms of the example that Huss set. I think this is the one that is most closely in line with the way Huss went about things. But my first thing is that churches, whether that's preachers, believers, Christians everywhere should be less afraid to step on people's toes. Now, I'm not saying we should be doing this on purpose. We shouldn't be actively seeking arguments and seeking fights, but we should be more willing to preach the gospel of Jesus without being so afraid and concerned that we're going to upset someone. Because right now we do live in a polarized world. Many of the issues that we want to talk about are so divisive that we can kind of tiptoe around them. We know that there's such a wide range of views and that they can be so extreme. So our tendency from the pulpit or in discussion with others is to kind of stick towards the middle so we don't alienate someone. And in our churches especially, we are so afraid of losing people, that we are so driven by numbers. How many people are coming to church? How many members do we have? What is our budget looking like? We're so hung up on those numbers that we are terrified of the thought of losing someone, of saying something in worship that Sue doesn't agree with, and eventually having her leave the church. That, for many of us, is the worst case scenario. And it has sometimes taken a priority to preaching the life and ministry of Jesus fully. Because as we look at his life, he divided opinion. He made people upset and angry. People disagreed with him. But he did all of these things, sparked all of these arguments, not just to fight with people, but because he was lifting other people up. He was extending hope and love. He was embracing communities and people that had been rejected or neglected or oppressed. He did it out of the sake of love, and a consequence sometimes was that people disagreed. And sometimes I think we steer clear of that potential consequence, consequence of someone disagreeing with us, 
And the result of that is we're not always offering a true picture of Jesus and his life. Because we link, think about the many issues in our world today, I think it's probably a lot less complicated than we realize to see where Jesus would fall on these issues, to see what he would do and what he would say. The trouble is that knowing where Jesus would be found and preaching to it will leave those who take the opposite approach. They will feel alienated. They will feel left out. They'll feel called out for what they believe when really we are just highlighting the message of Jesus. So I think we should be a little less afraid to step on toes if it means that we are following the gospel, if it means that we are preaching faith, hope, and love. And when we err on the side of truly following Jesus' example, at the risk of upsetting someone, potentially losing someone, it still keeps us closer to our calling. It gives us a truer sense of being the hands and feet of Christ, rather than pretending like Jesus wouldn't have an extreme view on something, that his belief wouldn't feel radical towards the things we're talking about. I think we need to try and shed the sense of polarization we have and the fear of alienating people who might disagree because they might disagree with the teachings of Jesus himself and the actions that he made in his life. But if we are preaching his example, we are doing the best we can as his followers. Now, the second thing I, that I think would be a helpful change within our church, but also I'm not entirely sure how making it happen would work. And it's something that lots of churches are dealing with, this sense of longing for our congregations to get younger, to have young families, to have young kids. We're desperate for the demographics of our church to not lean so heavily towards an older generation. I think all churches would say they want to be able to reach that younger population. And as our church is in that boat as well, I think we need to be very honest about our approach to that desire. Because we want younger people to be involved, but sometimes it feels like we want them to fall into what we think is best. And many of our churches are still leaning on and banking on the model of youth ministry that might have worked 40 to 50 years ago and hasn't changed a lot. We think everyone should still be in Sunday school before worship, to have time for youth group in the middle of the week. But maybe the reality is that in many settings, the world has evolved beyond that. And instead of just 
hosting Sunday school, Sunday mornings, and praying that one Sunday is going to be the Sunday when kids magically show up. Maybe we need to be willing to have a total recalibration in what it means to reach our youth, that they don't need to fit into the programming that we've established for years and years, that maybe it's time for us to tweak our approach, to go be with them where they are, see what they're involved in, what clubs are they a part of, what sports are they playing, what interests do they have, and seek community and relationship that way. And I don't know how that translates to their involvement at the church, but it might give us more options than just hoping they come to us eventually, hoping that one fall semester, all the kids will magically have one night of the week where they're free and they can come to youth group and things will be just fine. As we're finding in our church, it is getting harder and harder to get different families and different kids on a, a similar schedule. If we had every kid in our church coming to a youth group event, we'd probably have 15 kids. But to get a night when even six of those kids can be there together is almost impossible. So maybe we, we need to rethink that approach and stop just expecting the kids to return if we keep providing the same ministries and activities that we've been providing for decades and start from scratch to maybe seek community and relationship before advertising Bible lessons and crafts and activities. What is the need for our kids today? What do they want to be involved in? And where can the church play a part in those areas? And again, I'm not sure how that works out. I'm not sure what that looks like, but I do have a sense that just forcing the same structure and the same routine year after year is only going to leave the organizers of those events feeling disappointed and let down while still not having the connection to the kids that we want to have. So I think reimagining how we reach out to the youth around us is something that's so important. And I think a big part of it is letting go of the way we used to do this part of our ministry. My last idea is something that's specific to the Moravian Church, but it might speak to other congregations as well. And that is making better resources and publicity available for, I'll say, your average congregation. And what I mean by this is that in the Moravian Church, on social media, in our Moravian magazine, and other news publications that our church puts out. We are probably, I, I don't know what the percentage would be, but I'd say 70-ish percent of the things that we see going on that are worth publicizing and sharing to the greater church, 
they usually revolve around our emerging ministries. So our uh, Moravian ministries that don't look like traditional congregations, celebrating the innovative and creative work that they do. So we hear about emerging ministries and we hear about the work of our board of world mission that serves in a variety of contexts around the globe. But as you page through those social media posts or those pages in the magazines, after a while, it starts to feel like we aren't sharing much or any of what our local churches are doing. And I maybe didn't realize the extent of it until I was just at Synod, our gathering of Moravian churches in the northern province. And it was there talking with other pastors that I heard about the justice ministry that some churches are doing, about some of the mission trips that they've gone on or the ways that they serve their community. And you see these wonderful examples of ministry as you talk with these pastors, but unless you have the chance to sit down and talk with them, you would never know what their churches are up to. And for churches that are searching for ways they can be involved, searching for advocacy work they can do or work on racial justice or ways they can be involved in social issues, we're so curious about how we can plug in and be engaged, but those resources, I think, are hard for us to find. And sometimes it feels like there is a push that's you know, well-merited to say that we need to encourage and lift up new ideas of ministry, ministries that don't look like your traditional church, that we definitely need to celebrate them and look for more of them. But sometimes for your average church, my church included, when we see the push for all of that, I think folks in the pews can feel like we either need to start shifting towards that model of ministry, or we will watch our congregations slowly continue to fade away without much hope that things will turn around. It's like there's an expectation to totally rewrite what you're doing in your setting, because that's the new way ministry is going. And I think it can leave churches feeling a little left out and a little clueless as to what are the steps forward for us. How can we learn more about what other churches are doing well, where they've found success? How can we share those stories and maybe try and implement something in our own setting? Because for those emerging ministries, for the work of the Board of World Mission, we're called to support them and to be involved with them. And we love to support them, but it can, it can set up a, a structure where we are donating items or money to certain organizations that are doing the ministry, that are sharing those gifts. And we struggle to make our church exist outside of our church walls. That unless ministry is happening within our sanctuary, within our building, 
it's hard to see the tangible things that we can do together. Instead of just throwing donations and throwing money at certain projects, what could we do in our area? And there are churches who have found great success doing that. And I think our churches would be better served hearing those stories, seeing the hope and seeing the service that's at work and being encouraged to make it work in your own context. So I think a better structure of getting those resources out there, not just for new ministries, not just for the work that the World Board of World Mission is doing around the globe, but in our own congregations. What has worked in other settings and what could potentially work where we are? So that's my attempt at three potential changes, a mini reformation of our church. Once again, full and well knowing that this probably won't be a conversation that is brought up 600 years from now. But I think even personally, it was a good exercise to think of the changes that I could see as necessary in our churches today and to start the process of really actively thinking of where the church needs to be in the future and the steps we might take to get there. So I appreciate you listening to another episode. If you'd like to learn more about the church I serve, that's the Freedom Moravian Church. We are on Facebook. You can worship with us on YouTube. You can check out our website as well. If you want to see more about the work of the Greater Moravian Church, that can be found at moravian.org. So thank you again for listening. It was great to be with you all. Be well, and I will catch you next time.